Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and what I want to play for you today is a recent conversation with our Libertarian Christian Roundtable. We have a podcast called Good News, Bad News, and every two weeks we record and talk about topics that are happening in the news. In this particular case, it ended up being a huge conversation about the nature of social media. It was at the beginning of Elon Musk's forays into Twitter ownership, which has now been confirmed to be complete in a certain way. So anyway, I thought this episode was a lot more thematic than it was current events related, even though it was spawned by current events. And I wanted to share this on the regular podcast because we do need to talk about the nature of social media, social media companies, etc. So enjoy the episode. Hey, welcome back to Good News, Bad News. I'm Norman Horn. This is the Libertarian Christian Institute's Christian Libertarian Roundtable. And with me tonight, I have got my good friends, Carrie Baldwin, Aaron Zipovadakwe, and our guest for tonight is the le- one and only legendary Olivia Langarica from <laughs> Mexico herself. And so welcome, Olivia, to Good News, Bad News. How are you doing? Thank tonight? you, guys. Thank you for having me here. It's <laughs> my first time, and I am a little bit nervous. But, and I apologize for my English in advance. <laughs> oh, you know what? We're glad to have you here. Olivia has been a growing part of the organization. She has been active in helping to translate our book, Faith Seeking Freedom, into Spanish, which is up and coming. It's, we won't exactly put a release date on it at this point, but we're really excited that November on the way. November? Is that what you're... Are you telling me November now? All okay. right. You heard it here first. You heard <laughs> it here first. It's November. We're holding you to that. <laughs> we're holding you yeah, to yeah, that now. January. <laughs> okay, we're doing nope, nope, it's November now. You, you, uh, you're, you're there. Well, we have a bunch of fun stuff to talk about tonight. We want to really have kind of only a couple themes for tonight. Often we'll talk about some of the recent events in the news, but tonight we're going to kind of go with a main topic that's kind of spurred by one particular element of the news and then getting into the different elements of it. And that is the goodness and badness of social media itself. Uh, And to an extent, this is spawned by the recent revelation that none other than Elon Musk, who's become one of my <laughs> favorite people to observe, I've come completely full circle on Elon, I think, in the last year or two. But he's taken a massive stake in Twitter. And if you're unaware, he's taken nearly a 10% stake. I think it's like 9.2 or 9.5% of a stake in Twitter, which is massive. I mean, this is something on the order of a multi-billion dollar investment at that point. It's a pretty big deal, right? 
has resulted in him being offered a board seat, him turning down a board seat, people saying they're going to leave Twitter, uh, other organizations saying, we will not hire you if you left Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty funny. That was Substack, yeah. But it does kind of raise this big issue that is kind of endemic to our age at this point, which is, what does social media mean to all of us? And so that's what we're going to kind of talk about tonight, is the efficacy of social media, how important it is to us, and the problems that it presents, and so on and so forth. To kind of also set the stage there, it's worth noting that some of our libertarian compatriots over at the Soho Forum and Reason, namely Gene Epstein, the founder and the man who runs Soho Forum, and our friend Robbie Soav at Reason did a debate recently with none other than Jonathan Haidt, who's a really well-known author and university professor who wrote The Righteous Mind, The Coddling of the American Mind. The guy's really smart. And in fact, Robbie and Jonathan are friends and they you know, are, are kind of colleagues in a manner of speaking, even though they differ on a number of issues. But this debate was about whether or not the federal government should even begin to regulate social media more. And so that was pretty interesting. And then Haidt even had an article in The Atlantic recently about comparing modern social media to kind of a renewed Tower of Babel, if you will. Now, if you've been around LCI for a while, you, kind of, you may know what my position is in our, how we interpret the Tower of Babel from the book of Genesis. Uh, we don't need to get into that in particular, but he makes the analogy that it's bringing everybody in a bunch of different languages together, and it has the capacity to break apart and dismember a whole bunch of stuff while it's at it. Now, what what I would mention there that I was I was listening was, for example, the issue of Ukraine mm-hmm. and Russia. Whatever we were doing here in the United States, it was immediately done everywhere else in the world. Like there is a sort of homogenizing effect without delay. It's not like okay, the fashion we have right now is little by little gonna go someplace else. It's gonna change on its way, adapting to the cult, local cultures and whatever. No, no, there's absolutely no delay whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So it's like everybody's just the whole society, the whole world is culturally homogenized completely. So that can be good, that can be bad. I have no clue because I'm not a sociologist, but it is interesting that there's no delay <laughs> on the transmission of, of, of culture and ideas. Well, I think there's no doubt that the internet and particularly social media has changed the way we have interacted with one another. In both good ways and bad ways. I mean, I wouldn't be able to speak with Olivia if it wasn't for the internet. Exactly. <laughs> we had never exactly. met. And frankly, we, I would imagine we barely would have discovered her if not for social media. Right. With, well, with respect to our, our dear, lovely lady there. You know. <laughs> we have an opportunity, and we've seen this. We saw this with the Canadian trucker convoy, mm-hmm. that when things happen across the world, we're able to, you know, participate in it in in some fashion indirectly, perhaps, but we're able to see it happening in almost real time. And that has an impact certainly on how we interact, how we perceive the world, those sorts of things. But I think that there's this hesitation, there's this sort of drawing back and saying, "Mm, is this really a good idea? Is social media really a good idea? Maybe we should be pulling back. Maybe this is becoming a problem. And I think that we're learning how to adapt to it. It's certainly a new thing that we didn't have growing up. And so there's going to be adaptation to it. There was 
for a very long time. It was a new shiny thing and we jumped into it (laughs) head first. And now we're sort of starting to reevaluate its uses, but I see more benefits than I see detriments to it. And any detriments are just a matter of adapting and choosing to regulate ourselves. Negative externals, we have to internalize. Mm-hmm. So, And some of the criticisms of social media seem to smack of the same kind of criticisms that occurred back in when things that we would normally now consider completely benign or even completely at this point deprecated to other technologies as being earth shattering, the sky is falling and so on. You know, civilization is coming to an end. And we're talking about things like bicycles or the radio (laughs) or, you know, I mean, robots are coming to steal our jobs because, you know, we have automatic buttons now on an elevator or something to that effect. I mean, these are... Now, there are different degrees of what that, I think, looks like. And, you know, even Jonathan Haidt argues even against that point in his debate with Soav about that that kind of has a bit of survivorship bias, is that we see those technologies that did survive and didn't affect versus those that died on the vine or, (laughs) or versus those that did get regulated and then became obsolete or something to that. I mean, there, there's different progressions of technology that have had different types of trajectories. I don't mm-hmm. think it's a, it's a perfectly fair argument, but it is interesting to consider as well. And I think that, you know, there are some easy to see downsides to what social media can do. Anybody can find a way to lose self-control in a variety of different scenarios, like just put the right thing in front of them. Right. And it can mess somebody up. Right. I mean, but it's all due to the choices of individuals rather than some type of deterministic technology. The way that some of these people like to talk about this stuff is on the order of addiction to where, oh, you're compulsively now going to have to fall into it. Well, and I don't I think, like that. <laughs> I think it can fall into addiction, but addiction is also something that is revealing of something deeper. And so exactly. I think what you what you get with social media is I mean I think the most obvious thing that got revealed using social media was this bias in corporate media, the old traditional mm-hmm. news organizations and the fact that hey, we could actually corroborate their stories. We could dig in and see if they were telling the truth. We can explore alternatives now. And that was something you didn't have before. So social media has this revealing effect. Yeah. It reveals these deeper things that maybe people are struggling with as individuals, as human beings. I think we need to be very cautious about saying, oh, social media has caused this. Yeah. It's a completely different ball of wax. Well, and it's interesting you bring it up like that, with you, especially using the word reveal. Even the new science of addiction, which I, I, it is appropriate to call it the new science of addiction. Mm-hmm. And I I guess I should back up and suggest what does that mean? You know, there's historically, even amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ, we often, we've talked in the past about addiction as being not just a mere dependency, but like this measure of compulsion that is unable to be released from Mm. beyond mere chemical dependence, but some sort of your loss of will is what is really going on here. And that's why there's such a backlash against 
being addicted to anything. So suddenly right. like your will is being abrogated. Right. But what I think the new science is beginning to show us is that addiction is really just revealing the lack of healthy relationships because relationally mm-hmm. is how you get out of it. Yes. Right. So if yes. you lack healthy relationships to help you relate to the world around you, you're going to find something to make you feel safe and content. Right. That's what these things do. Even if it has a drawback, even if it has a withdrawal symptom or all these, I mean, that's the whole point of these drugs and whatnot. And that doesn't mean that, you know, oh, well, as long as you got healthy relationships and doing all the drugs is a good thing yeah. or something like that. That's not what we're trying to say here, but rather that the best protection against these sorts of things is to be in good relationships with people. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what is social media revealing here? When, you know, we hear things like Heights argument about how, teenage depression is up to a much greater incidence in the last 10 years than we've seen in the past. Well, even if that is a caused primarily by social media, what that ought to be telling us is, well, doggone, maybe we need to be examining how well our parents are relating to teens. Or maybe, mm-hmm. you know, parents need to right. parents need to get more involved in their kids, you know, behaviors and whatnot. Or the effects of the effects of public schooling on kids. Doggone, I mean, who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I, I remember reading a study about how they were thinking that there's a possibility that kids who, like teens who get access to marijuana are actually unwittingly self-medicating for ADHD. Mm. And ADHD is directly connected to trauma and, and poor relationships and families. So... I think it's important that we understand that this, well, it does have, social media does have a revealing effect. The way we've thought about addictions in the past is probably inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And certainly all of it, even the critics of social media would say that one of the things that we should really be looking into are cultivating healthy relationships once again. So, And I think this leads to another interesting point that, is kind of contra Jonathan Haidt. And by the way, you know, for those of who will be interested, we'll make sure and link in our show notes and even in the YouTube video or in the podcast page, wherever you happen to be listening to this, links to these additional articles and whatnot that you can go ch- take a look at. And hopefully you'll find benefit from them. But one, one you know, thing that Haidt mentions in his article about well, it's, I think it's called against, is it against Babel or a new Babel? I'm forgetting Something off the top like of my head or um, a, whatever it is, Babel, that one of the results of the social media craze has been a loss of trust in institutions. Now, okay, certainly that we might say to some extent, like, hey, that's a good thing. But it also could be the case that it's the other way around that there is a loss of trust in institutions, which is driving people to go to these other sources in order to find elements of, well, trying to understand truth better. Right. So what does that mean? Well, maybe that is like, you know, loss of trust in say the church or your family or your educational community that's around you because, you know, screw public schools, but, you know, there is still (laughs) a social component to them that provides a measure of balance to people. And, you know, they have a... As far as I understand really well, the Jehovah Witnesses, since the internet came along, let's say when people started using it very heavily, they really had no way to protect their people from all the silly stuff that happened, 
let's say in the 70s and 60s, because all the documentation was there and it completely transformed that social institution or that that sect. So the impact of the internet, even without social media, still talking about it, it is very real in social mm-hmm. institutions. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Well, and to some degree, there's a question of, have these institutions been trustworthy in all the areas they claim to be trustworthy in? Yeah. That's something worth exploring. But along with that, you know, we don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We don't want to say, okay, the public education system is toxic and terrible for children, but does that necessarily mean that private education options are a bad thing? And maybe not. So I think it's interesting. I kind of, I did not get all the way through Jonathan Haidt's Atlantic article because <laughs> it was a little exhausting. But if I had a criticism for him, it was that he lamented too much the lack of trust in institutions and didn't talk about the fact that there might be a good reason why we're not trusting those institutions right now. And we need to explore that. And that's been made possible by social media and the internet. The push for institutions to improve. Right. Okay. But let's not confuse, well, or shall I say, the lumping of any type of institution altogether in this respect should not be overlooked. So if this helps to build distrust in the state, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I you think know. it has. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we, we see a corresponding increase in trust elsewhere as a result. Because you're going to have to put your trust in something. Mm-hmm. You know. Nobody, well, there are nihilists out there, but we're not completely there. <laughs> okay, but you're saying that there's an increase in trust in other areas of life. You kind of have to. Okay. I don't know about that, but... Well, you, when you place right. your trust in what you're garnering from Instagram or something to that effect, I mean, that's what they're doing. There might be a pendulum swing effect. You know, it's not necessarily that what they're putting their trust in now is any better yeah. than before. I mean, ideally the sort of revelation of ways in which, you know, these institutions have harmed us should lead to us thinking about these things more deeply, coming to more nuanced, you know, thoughts and ideas about them. And that may not be the case. I mean, to his credit, Jonathan Haidt has done a tremendous job in talking about academic freedom and Mm -hmm. free speech at the university level and is recognized far earlier than most how crucial the upcoming years would be as free speech was getting, you know, attacked mm-hmm. on college campuses and university campuses worldwide. Okay. So why is that important? Well, that does involve in some sense, or the, the fallout of that is a loss of trust in the institution. Right. And that's on some level, you could say, oh, well, that's a good thing because there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in universities. Granted, totally agree with you there. However, that erosion over time is what we wanted to avoid in the first place. It should be the case that we want our best and our brightest people who are in the intellectual circles to be of robust intellectual quality, who are producing good and new knowledge, who have the freedom to say things that are going to be controversial, that things are going to get debated without the fear of reprisal just immediately, which is no longer Mm. the case anymore at universities with the rise of wokeism and so on. Mm. Okay. And so, you know, all these things working together to result in a loss of trust 
that has a negative effect too. And I'm not here to argue like, you know, the point about like, well, fewer people should go to college, which I think is probably true and so on. But well, I think the market response should be to compete then with those institutions that have failed us in one way or another. And new institutions compete against the old ones. Right. Yes. It's it's not so much that we need, well, it's like I said before, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Mm -hmm. But if a business starts to provide a poor service over time and the consumer figures that out, they're going to look elsewhere and that's an opportunity for innovation. So, you know, in one sense... We can lament the fact that our institutions of higher learning, for example, have failed us in academic freedom. But on the other hand, that is an opportunity to innovate so that we can have that. 100% agree. The challenge there is that the beauty of the university system in in its good form Mm -hmm. was that you have sort of a, a historical backing to it. That mm. part of the reason that you could trust it was because of its lineage and history. Mm. Okay. And so long as it was continuing to produce, it was a good thing. Right. You have this very robust framework for vetting ideas through things like peer review. There were good reasons to have things like tenure. And I mean, all of these things worked out really nicely and well for a lot of really good reasons. Mm. However, It hasn't taken nearly as long to erode that and make it so much less valuable than it once was. The problem even with trying to say, yeah, like, yeah, that's an opportunity for innovation is that it's going to take some measure of time in order to build up reputation and trust in the new institution. We want those strong institutions so that we can have levels of trust that the information that we're receiving is good. I mean, Think about it even in terms of the way we think about churches. Mm-hmm. Which one are you going to trust? And I'm going I'm to ruffle some feathers. Here's the hot take, right? Do you trust the random non-denominational church that just showed up down the road and put out a big old banner and saying, come learn theology here? Or are you going to be more interested in Concordia Seminary down the road that has a 100-year history of doing good theological teaching? and a reputation of hiring good professors and a, and a board that you know about. And like, the answer is freaking clear, right? Right, yeah. There you go. So I guess the point is, is that there is a loss. There's an in- opportunity for innovation and gain, but it's not symmetrical. <laughs> mm. Well, if anything, the takeaway that we should come away with this is that our Actions have consequences and they may not be seen for decades, you know, however long that is. So when people start talking about these ideas like, hey, maybe we shouldn't actually be censoring Facebook over COVID lockdowns or whatever it is. Yeah. There are consequences for our actions and we don't necessarily see what those consequences are going to be. We just know, hey, censorship is a bad idea because we've seen that, you know, in history that it's a bad idea. Yeah. And again, we're kind of critiquing Hyde here to his, again, I keep saying like to his credit, because I I do want to somewhat like, even though I highly disagree with many of Hyde's ideas, I think he's got many prescient things to say and important Mm -hmm. things to listen to. 
So to his credit, that's not what he's asking for, which is, you know, you know well, he's not asking for that. that level of like that. <laughs> yeah. That's not what he's gunning for per se. Yeah. So my disagreements with him are things that like, well, how do you interpret this data? How do you right. think about, how do you think about the, this cause and effect sort of deal? And to his credit, like, that's not what he's asking for. He's more interested in things like, okay, I mean, if it is the case that depression is on the rise with young preteen and teen women because of the way that Instagram is talking about womanhood and so on and so forth, how should that be dealt with? I potentially would disagree on the premise. I would pro- I have disagreements <laughs> with him on even if that is true, what he might do about it. But right. at least he's asking a question that is not yeah. just like, we need Facebook to not set, let anybody say anything that's negative about a vaccine, a lockdown, or you know the lab right. theory or something. Insofar as he is raising the red flag, we should take a look at it as a culture. Yeah. Any desire on his part to strong arm a solution, particularly through social media regulation, I would strongly recommend against. Yeah. Obviously, we all would. But yeah, raising the red flag is one thing. Saying, mm-hmm. hey, the government needs to do something about this is a completely other thing. Especially since... Our culture today is in a terrible habit of turning to the government for just about every single problem we have. Well, and then, you know, there are so many good things to learn from trying to understand technology at kind of a meta level, Mm. whether you're going back and reading Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is highly recommended, or more recently, taking a look at A World Without Email by Cal Newport, which is a great book, Mm. and realizing that technologies are not just purely neutral. I mean, (laughs) that's not what happens when you introduce new technology into the world. So just being mindful of what's happening in this regard and, you know, kind of being ready, especially as parents, to observe and be more mindful about what our kids are consuming and just continuing to be active in that. I think that's a good thing. As far as I understand, big CEOs, try to not depend upon social media or even the phone as much as we regular people do. So <laughs> they, they do discipline themselves. So because of the distraction issue, right? I mean, that, that's always not a big deal. It's just... They say that all the Silicon Valley CEOs don't allow their kids on the technology that, I they, would like to know that, that they've developed. Well, like but, all of them? That's, that's, I, that's, that's what I've heard. A, I don't know that that's true, but that's what I've heard. There are other confounding reasons that are beyond like, oh, this is dangerous in terms of their mental development or something. It actually, right. it also has to do with the potential. I mean, those guys live in very different worlds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. And they need yeah. that protection. Yeah. That's, I mean, uh, that's really kind of the case. I mean, you have possible everything from predators to people trying to just take advantage of their kids or people trying to weasel their way into the business somehow. Yeah, that makes sense. The baseball player from the New York Giant, New York Yankees, <laughs> Alex Rodriguez. I think he was forbidden for you to come in into the house with to his house with a phone. That's it. Doesn't matter if he was like flip phone wow. or whatever. You leave it outside. You can come in and we can have a party. No phones allowed. That's it. End of the story. So, but you said yeah. you said it's a different life. That's not un, that's not uncommon. I mean, you remember recently when I think it was like Barack Obama had a birthday party or something like that in Martha's Vineyard where he has a house. And oh, something yeah. that was unusual was that they actually allowed phones in and the pictures started circulating and it uh-huh. were unmasked and it was, oh my God, it's a scandal. You know, <laughs> yep. you know what? 
that's why. I mean, that's why right. they do that sort of stuff at times. So just don't don't forget that those people live in a different world. <laughs> yes, they do. In more ways than one. More ways than one. More <laughs> ways than one. Well, that's a pretty good way, perhaps, of wrapping that up, I suppose. But on to something else that we thought was interesting. We have our resident Mexican economist with us. <laughs> <laughs> and also... <I> <laughs> Well, and you know, you guys have been talking recently about some interesting insights you could have been gaining from reading none other than the founder of Austrian economics itself, Carl Menger. Mm-hmm. And so for those of us who do care a lot about Austrian econ and learning it deeply, tell us what you guys have been learning and uh, what sorts of insights have, have you been garnering? Okay, Olivia, the name of the book in Spanish is? Uh, Dinero. Dinero. And- <laughs> In English, yeah. Okay, this is super weird, guys. Money. You guys, the English speakers are going to... Yeah, yeah, literally, just money. There's two books that are related to this from Menger. It's The Origins of Money. Ah, okay. Yeah, That's different. Mm -hmm. From 18... Let me get get down. Oh, I got it here. Okay, 1890, I think. 1892, no. And then in 1909, Menger continued to write and kind of like improve upon the origins of money, adding a bunch of, bunch of stuff. That in the English-speaking world, when they translated the 1989 book in Spanish is Dinero in English, they didn't translate the title to money. They trans they just kept the German word Geld. So it's mm-hmm. Geld 1909, and it was translated into the year 2001, 2002. Nobody had touched it for almost a hundred years. Wow! And it's inside a book with a bunch of articles. It's literally like one article among many articles. It's just in a crazy weird way that it happened in, in the English-speaking world. So, and if you try to find it physically, getting you not, guys, if you find it is gold, the cheapest one is $500 physically. <laughs> Holy physical. cow. <laughs> what? In English. In Spanish, they go for a dollar. <laughs> and Olivia... Oh, not for a dollar. Oh, that seems, that seems normal. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and Olivia euros. can get you one. 20 euros. Okay, there you go. 20, 20 euros. Okay, so th- this is why I found this so, so interesting. I wanted English English speakers to know about these like kind of little details. There's a lot of works from Menger that were not really translated. Everything that happened in the 1900s for Menger, like all of his works are not even translated. As far I got, I found out last year at the end that there's a second edition of the Principles of Economics, his most important book has not been translated to any language. It just stayed in German and nobody has done it. Wow. Something weird happened that I still don't understand. Hmm. A lot of the work of Menger has not been translated to any language, to Spanish a little bit more than English. And then to English, when it gets translated, it gets like into this literally like compendiums of books that they just become like super expensive. So, yeah. but we have access to it through Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> At a very inexpensive way, so she can, she can kind of let us know and then she let me know of this wonderful passage. I wanted to let you guys know, I was actually getting into the full context. It is actually very related to what is happening today. Hopefully, most of you guys have heard your mostly lefty friends complaining that inflation is caused by profits. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. The yeah, whole week, what... at least two weeks, you guys have been hearing that, right? Now, mm-hmm. there's some legitimate concerns with that and that we can discuss that later on. But... Guess what was Menger trying to refute in that exact passage that Olivia found? 
people that thought that when prices rise, it has nothing to do with money. It's only because of the greedy merchants. That's wow. exactly what he was trying. And then he starts saying, I'm going to do the English translation so that everybody knows. And he's mm-hmm. saying, look, he went back all the way to Aristotle because Aristotle used to say those kind of things too, because by the way. His second mistake, remember, uh, once I said it, like, he was allowed two mistakes, he made them, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> he made the two mistakes he was allowed, and that's it. Let me read it to you guys. This is super cool, because he most kind of like, okay, there's a popular belief that it's kind of like merchants are to be blamed for absolutely everything, because if there's high prices, it's because they're horrible sellers and stuff like that. Kerry did a great job a couple of weeks ago trying to show that, hey, guys, that's not the case. Prices have risen 8%, but production costs has risen even more. So pe- right. a lot of merchants, a lot of small mm-hmm. small businesses have been taking losses, guys. Corporate profits is not the only profits in the economy, guys. There's right. much, much smaller businesses that are suffering a lot. And a lot has to do with the size of a corporation allows them to get a very, like whatever you see production costs, usually for a corporation is lower because in advance, they tend to buy materials and inputs at a much, much bigger quantity. So they get discounts. So it's a completely different universe. So we do have to be careful. And you did a great job, Kerry, by the way. I really did like that time. Remember, I, I got a little bit uh, animated that time. Like, yeah, we're not did. talking enough about it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you see, because it's kind of like a real thing. Like, okay, right. they want to blame. Like, anything that happens to corporations, the great thing for co- corporations, they're going to get rid of small businesses because whatever happens to corporations, people are going to end up like taking it on the small businesses. Like, honestly, corporations mm-hmm. are never going to get rid of, of the small guy just because it's like a... Skateball. But let, let me read it to you. After saying, look, these people think this crazy stuff, even Aristotle kind of like, as an Aristotelian, Manger said, you know, even Aristotle kind of, you know, he was kind of awake on that one. He says, any impartial analysis of market phenomena makes us recognize the far-reaching influence exerted on the exchange ratio between money and the goods traded by the variations of the quantity of money in circulation Mm-hmm. The variation of the economy's demand for circulating media. I'll come back to that one, by the way. The increasing or decreasing production cost of the money metals, which means how difficult it is to produce the money itself. So it's still money right. related, not mm. greedy capitalists or something like that. The more or less increasing use of document money. That's how we start using paper money. We use it more or less. And many other changes in the determining factors of price formation occurring only on the side of money and nothing to do with the production of goods and services. Do you guys see that? Like he was already yeah. trying to say, guys, money matters. There's nothing for you to always blame it on the seller. Something's right. going on with the medium of exchange. It's super, super important. And the reason why Olivia brought attention to me, it was because we don't talk about in the Austrian school, Mises and even Hoppe did discuss this to say, if the money supply increases, and both Hoppe and Mises said, and the demand for money, which means ah, yes. your, mm-hmm. your desire to keep cash balances, which means to not spend right. the money you get. That's what I mean by demand for money. It's like how right, much right. cash you how much cash you don't spend and how much cash you do spend. If the money demand stays stable, then prices rise. So the money supply causes prices to rise if the demand for money exactly stays stable. The big issue that we've been, and actually Bob kind of went through this back in 2008 to saying like, wait, what's going on? Prices, you know, money supply is shooting up and prices are shooting. I mean, they were like 2%, 3% in a bad year. Nothing like today, obviously, right? And the big issue that a lot of people were saying that, guys, we as Austrians, we need to pay a lot more attention to the demand for money. The money was created, but it wasn't chasing goods. It was literally just being stored. 
Yeah. And mm-hmm. that we don't emphasize it enough. And that's what, why we wanted to bring it up to discussion for everybody. When we start discussing about the value of the dollar, do pay attention to all the dollars that get created. Are they really being used? And I'm not saying that they're not because you can see the inflation going up. But there's a large portion that is just sitting there doing nothing in banks or in the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve or even in the Treasury Department. Sometimes they have a large amount of cash that they don't use for, you know, whatever the reasons are. So we just wanted to bring that to the English-speaking world because that book is great. And for some reason, it's actually difficult to find in the English version. So that's, I guess, that's about it. So we are seeing inflation. And so what goods are being chased then? They're not being chased in the same proportion than the, the money supply increased, let's say, 40%, and inflation only increased 8%. So there's a big portion that is not chasing goods. See what I'm saying? That, I'm not sure. We, it, it might not map one-to-one, but that's not really the point. I guess the, the reason why we are seeing inflation at a greater rate than, say, what occurred in 2008, for instance, and is that more due to the fact that we are seeing great like spikes in demand for certain types of goods and services? Back, yeah, okay. So th- there was back in the days there was a high spike on demand, which means all the cash was just being stored. High demand for cash, yes. low demand for goods and services. Yes. Today, a large portion got stored, but not as much as back then. So here now you can say we have a little bit lower demand for cash and a higher demand for goods and services, and we have. Supply chains are super slow because of the lockdowns and all the stuff in, in the world. The supply chain is so slow, but our money is more than readily available. Mm-hmm. Guess what's going to happen? That's going to end up pushing right. prices. Yeah. yeah. So, getting up prices. There you go. I was reading in, in the Yield that Menger was writing about the value of patron or the value patron. Oh, the, 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 gold, the, the gold standard? No, no, no. Not the gold standard. For the intrinsic exchange of goods, universal and invariable. Oh, okay. Yeah? And he was writing about this, and he found out that the economist, in general, in his age, was always trying to find some good that the price of this good doesn't change, doesn't have variation to to relate this lack of variation with all the goods and establish a, a price in order to establish a price, right? So we know, at least the Austrian economics, that the price is always a variation, it's always changing. And these economists in Menger's age always try to find a good that the price doesn't variation, right? So Menger said, no, this can be true. It's not possible because that will be so easy to settle a price and to find out what is the cost of the variation. But any goods have a settled or a established price, right? Or it's established value. I was sorry for my English, but I'm trying right. to explain and he was trying to explain that the money is also a good, right? The Austrian economics knows that the value of money is always is variation. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to explain that we don't know as economists that when we try to find the monetary prices in the goods, 
where we can find these monetary prices in the sight of money or in the sight of goods, right? I don't know if I can explain myself. Well, it is the same like what I was telling you that sadly, for some reason, people always focus on the good sites only depending upon what exactly. the seller decides mm-hmm. only. Right. And he's pointing that in that passage, it was to say, guys, we really do have to talk about the quality of money, the supply of money, the demand of money, because that's obviously going to affect the prices Exactly. Of goods and services is not just the decisions of the final seller saying, and ah, because the price or the value of money is it's always changing, also. They were expecting right? the value of money to be flat always, but it's impossible. Yeah. So now there's some of the additional theory that's been, I think, building up is the recognition of money as a game theoretic good. And by that, it is meant that the value that an individual places on money is based on the anticipatory nature of what they think the future is going to look like. Yeah. So Looking if forward. they have, yeah, so that they have a, and, and this is essentially the representation of. In our time preference change. Yeah. So, and part of what is built into that is not just what like, well, your valuation of it is based on the anticipation of what the other players in the game are going to value it as. Right. That's a huge thing. I mean, it's why, I was also going to ask, like, in these hidden, in these hidden Mengerian analyses, did he, did, <laughs> did you discover that that Carl Menger is actually Satoshi Nakamoto? Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're somewhat related. From yeah, the, so, so, <laughs> I, I think it's probably one reason why non-economists focus so much on goods and not money is because they don't understand that money is a good. No. Exactly. Yeah. There you yes. go. There you go. That mm-hmm. one. Yeah, they just think money is money. That's it. You know what? Here down in, in South Texas, my mm-hmm. students kind of get that. We're kind of blessed, if you wish, that the money itself changes because as they go back and forth to, Me- to Mexico or they know people that go back and forth, they actually see the value of the dollar change mm-hmm. against the peso and the peso against the dollar. And they'll ask you, sir, this time that it changed very heavily, which one do you think was the cause? Was it the dollar that changed the most or was it the peso that changed the most? And those questions are, in That's fact, changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have really that. Interesting. It was only the peso, and they can and we actually talk about those differences. Now today, I can mm-hmm. actually say that it was really a peso. And then let's say a, a world recession is not really the peso; is that everybody wants dollars, and so now they see that it's more of a dollar issue. So I usually tell my students that here in South Texas, I have a little bit easier time teaching macro, just because they see different currencies being changed mm-hmm. back and forth. They can see these little details or actually pay attention to those kind of details that the money itself is kind of like a just another commodity among many. Just the most popular commodity. Yeah, the two lessons. Well, I guess it's three lessons that I do with my course, which is based on Bob Murphy's book, Lessons for the Young Economist. Highly recommend it. Yes, highly recommend it. You know, it's explaining not only how prices are formed and the fact that prices form without money, without the existence of money because of exchange ratios, but then it talks about why money arises and why that's also a good. So he gives a great, explanation of that really breaks it down in a simple way. Awesome. Yeah, you're 100% right that people mistakenly understand money as a non-good per Mm -hmm. se, but it is a very weird type of good. Yeah. Okay. You know, for instance, in some sense, money itself is kind of like what's called a Veblen good. You familiar, you're familiar with that term, Veblen good? No. Okay. So most of the time, most of the time when what happened, okay. So if if the price goes up for a good, what is demand going to do? 
it's going to go down, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, that's typically what you expect is that as the price of something increases perpetually, demand is going to go down. Velvet goods are the opposite. And so the demand for these types of goods actually goes up with increasing price. Hmm. And this kind of, you can even understand this as it pertains to something like a Bitcoin, yeah. for instance, which were you that interested in Bitcoin when it was a dollar? Right. Probably not. Yeah. You know, but now that it's $40,000, you're thinking, hmm, maybe I need to get yeah, in on this. That's interesting. Yeah. So money is very different as a type of good, you know, in many respects than your typical consumption good or even your capital good to that extent. Hey, everyone. If you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. So with inflation, Aaron, didn't you say that the demand for the dollar has gone up as well? They increase the money supply through the roof, right? I mean, it's just right. like crazy, yeah. right? 40%. Yeah. If the demand for money, the desire of people that get the, the new money had not changed at all, like mm. it was just flat, mm-hmm. then everything would have gone into prices for the most part. Does it make sense? Like we just mm-hmm. be 40. Now, this is the trick, guys. When they create money during a recession, they do it because there's an increased demand for money, which means for cash balances. Mm. People are less willing to spend during difficult times. Mm-hmm. So in relation, if you want to say it this way, that money supply increased 40% or so, prices rose about 8%, which means that most of the difference you can say that demand for money, the desire for people to, res- to keep cash in their cash balances because they're afraid of the future, obviously, increased, let's say what it would be like 30 to 25% or something like that. So that desire, and that's usually not us, like regular middle classers and, you know, the most of the population is, Big institutions that get cash from the Fed, sometimes they say, can we just keep this? That's fine because you think about this. It's not like a household. As soon as you get money, you want to start paying your your bills, your debts, you know. Mm -hmm. But if a big financial institution gets new money, oh, it's going to devalue with inflation. Well, don't worry about it. We're going to end up buying a financial asset later on. We might actually need this money later on. So don't worry. They're more willing to, okay, let's not use it at all. That's why the Fed introduces money through the financial system because it takes longer for them to spend it. Therefore, it takes longer for prices to rise. And so nobody notices. You see what Ah, I'm saying? Ah, yeah. If they introduce it through like what they did right now, 
with the stimulus checks. The stimulus checks, yeah. And merely we just go buy stuff and then pushes prices right away. It doesn't take long. But when the Fed does this through the financial system, it actually takes a lot of time because it's not like us that we're going to go spend it right away. So mm-hmm. since the money is given to financial institutions, they take forever to spend whatever money they get. And so you can say that demand for money, which means the desire to keep cash balances has increased by a lot because mm-hmm. we noticed 40% increase, but you know, inflation only increased like 8%. So right. that's, that is tricky is that not all the money in order mm-hmm. for prices to go up. And that was the point, the, the, the key point of Mises when he was trying to define inflation, mm-hmm. it was increases in the money supply above the demand for money. Mm-hmm. Because if they increase the money supply and the demand for money increases also, then that's not going to affect prices because it's what it means in simple ways is they create new money and nobody spends it. Okay, what does that happen to prices? Nothing at all. Gotcha. And we always should focus on, hey, what's happening to the demand for money? Is it really going to affect prices? If it doesn't, literally, where's the money? I think Jason, last time he was here, he was saying a lot of money was not spent. Later on when it's spent, we don't know at which stage of production is going to be spent. It's going to push up uh-huh. prices there and that can actually create malinvestments not when the money was created but later Way down the, the line yeah wow. exactly because it's still being mm. kind of like stored if you wish yeah so in demand for money guys study a lot because <laughs> the money supply is not everything that that's right. the point literally the olivia in middle country like we don't talk about enough about the demand for money and that actually yeah. matters a lot no and i was thinking about our conversation previously when we were talking about that the austrian don't read major. I don't know mm-hmm. why. And Aidan and myself were talking about that Menger was really a free banker, right? And why we, he was a free banker. I know maybe um, Norman is not that agree <laughs> with us. <laughs> a okay. Okay. <laughs> to, to, our audi- to our audience, to our audience, guys. She's talking about the debate between 100% reserves and fractional reserve banking. Just ah, trying. okay. Yes. Ah, yes. And but okay. explain them why okay. we think the, that Menger is a free banker. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. No. I, I, I wasn't going to bring it up, okay? We can always blame it on Olivia. I love That's this. What, I love this. Okay. When, when, when she says, hey, can you look at this one? I don't know. When I was reading that passage, it says document money. And document money is what Mises called fiduciary media, which means the banks create more money than what they have in, in reserve. And then I was looking for the word document money on that book. And then it comes out of a passage that where you can see Menger was pretty much in favor of fractional reserve banking. Ooh. But... Mm. We can live in peace with 100 percenters because we're Austrians <laughs> and we all love each other and we all sing Kumbaya and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> this, and, is, this is the fight that Austrian families have over the Thanksgiving dinner table. How <laughs> dare <laughs> you? And How in every language, by the way. Against 100% reserves. I, 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 not, think, I think the LCI is going to be divided. In this oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was hilarious. Honestly, I didn't expect it, but I did not know. And some friends were telling me that in Brazil, among libertarians, like I think it was, tw- I think it was 2020 itself, where people were spending more time in, on, on mm-hmm. social media. Like literally what divided libertarians. I think they were looking for something to divide themselves just to entertain yeah, themselves. We, we, yeah, we, them. we, gotta, yeah, we, we got to argue about something. We find Everything something. in Brazil among libertarians was who was in favor of fraction or was in favor <laughs> <That's> of... <laughs> <laughs> yes. I didn't know. That's I was hilarious. completely surprised, honestly, because oh it, it was it was so hilarious. Funny. But we can work together. We can all ha- uh, hold hands yeah, and yeah. work together. But let it be said that Mangrove was in favor of fractional resources. In Spanish. <laughs> in Spanish. What's Kumbaya in Spanish? 
And in, and in Portuguese too, I mean, you know, Portuguese, yeah, also. Yeah, yeah. Portuguese shouldn't they get maybe, and that maybe and that might be the next language that faith seeking freedom gets translated into. That's a goal. Yeah, yeah. we're working on it slowly but surely. Olivia also speaks Portuguese, by the way. Yeah, but I'm not. I wouldn't be there to translate into Portuguese. But, but yeah, I do speak I do speak in, por in Portuguese because I live in Brazil like one year and a half. <laughs> well, well, yeah. That's enough. Sure. She did survive. She did survive. She paid her bills in, in Portuguese. She worked in Portuguese. Yeah, she can actually handle it. Well, that's Portuguese. longer than any of us, so. I know, right? <laughs> Guys, we have connections. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> we got it. We got this. It's all good. Well, thanks. Thanks, guys, for doing this. I think we've spent a pretty hefty amount of time here. Yeah. Really only hitting like a couple issues, but this has been really fun. Yeah. Uh, so thanks to Olivia once again for joining us here and educating Thank us you. a little bit about some history of Austrian econ that we might not have known. Hey, and before we sign off, the recent posts on the uh, Libertarian yes. Christian Institute oh, yeah. website. Episode 269, Failures in Public Health During the Pandemic with Dr. Mary Ruart. Yeah. That is up and ready for you to read. That was me um, interviewing her, by the way. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we so have you know. <laughs> two fairly recent articles. One is Singapore's Economic Success, What We Can Learn From It. It's a pretty interesting one. Also, Aaron wrote one about how the Russian government is not or was not imposing or going to the gold standard. He was imposing, Putin was imposing capital controls. And then Doug Stewart has a new trying to be weekly, but so far bi-weekly theme of articles called Living Free. The most recent one is called Advancing Freedom Requires Focus on What Matters. So go check those out on the website. That one was very nice. Yeah. And if you haven't already, please do us a favor, like this video or this podcast or whatever you're listening to this on. And, you know, hit that subscribe button. Do all those nice things that all those really like actually YouTubers that are trying to promote themselves really heavily do. Yes. We don't really know what to say. We just want you guys here. Yep. So thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.